Romans 15. Open your Bible to Romans chapter 15. We'll be looking this morning at at the close of the book of Romans officially. Now, I know what you're saying. There's a chapter and a half left. This is really the end of the instructive section and beginning in verses 14 and following is the personal section where he begins to find the, the landing strip and the gears and the wheels are down and he starts reaching for the end. There's no surprise that this subject becomes the ultimate question that he wants to answer for the good and benefit of the church. Title today is Loving Acceptance, Christ's Solution to Divisive Diversity. Romans 15, follow along as I begin reading in verse 7. Paul says, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every church, both early and often, decides what kind of church it's going to be. Very few people stop to think about what sets that trajectory or that direction, but it's true. You may or not recognize that, but you have come into our church the first time, the 400th time, with a certain set of desires and decisions to make Mission Road what, what it is. Now, in my experience in the past three decades of ministry, I've noticed the effort by many churches to define their churches by interesting preferences. For example, they define their music by dress. Uh, I've had a conversation with several people who've told me there's a certain group of people, Rick, you will never, ever reach because you wear that stinking tie. I've had other people say, I heard a a conversation between two people say, you cannot tuck your shirt in. And another say, you must tuck your shirt in. I wish I were kidding with you. Others, it's music. I've heard everything from if you don't have contemporary music in your church, you're missing the boat to if you have Satan on your stage, be careful because that's where Satan lives, is in the drum set. Sorry, Mark. How casual, how formal, 
How do you define the church? How do you find who we are and who comes and who feels included and who feels excluded? I think that the biblically, biblically egregious flaw with such efforts is that we're trying to create environments that attract certain kinds of people with common kinds of preferences. Homogeneity is one of the buzzwords in church growth movements. Have churches that are built around the same kinds of people. Listen, friends, that is the exact opposite of what happened in the early church. Not only was there no homogeneity, all of the same kind, there, was, there were two explicit groups who hated each other, who fought each other, who turned each other in on the, uh, to be arrested, and God brought them together in, in unity in the church. I, I'm going to give you the punchline. Today, Paul is going to address us on the issue of prejudice. Specifically, prejudice with believers and prejudice of other people who are a part of the blood-bought church of his son. Prejudging, that's at the root of the word Prejudice. Prejudging according to our preferences. And I wonder if I were to ask you, how prejudiced are you? How, how honest you would be? How self-aware you would be of your prejudices? Listen, can, can we just be honest here? About who comes to your church and who doesn't. I, um, I have a, a situation that's indelibly etched on my own heart. I was the college pastor out in California for a few years, and a, and a family came in uh, one Sunday. They sat in the back right. I can see just exactly where they were sitting right now in my mind. And there were six or eight of them, kids and parents, and, and, and I, don't know, I don't know how to explain this to you except to, to say that they were, they were dressed very goth. You know what goth is? A heavy, dark makeup, uh, some bleach blonde hair, dreadlocks, um, dark clothing. And I looked at them when I was preaching and I can remember, I can remember what was happening in my heart. Just thinking, I'm glad God brought them together today, brought them here today because they need to hear the gospel. I even had that, that moment. I gotta confess this as a preacher. Sometimes you see someone who you think is an unbeliever and you move into super evangelist mode. You think, I'm gonna let them know how they need to repent today. And, and, and praise God, the gospel was preached. And then they came back the next week. And the next week. And then they started going to one of our Bible studies. This whole family. And then I was at lunch with a group of interns. And they said, have you met the, and they told me the name of the family. And I said, no, who's that? And they says, well, they're the, they're the goth family that sits in the back. And I said, well, no, I've not met them, but I've seen them. And they said, they are the sweetest, most Christ-loving group of people I think I've ever met. So you you got you to take me from black and white to color. What, what do you mean by that? They love Christ. They love our church. They love our music. They love the preaching. They love the care group. They love the small group. They love the Bible study. They want to be involved. They want to serve. They want to grow. And they just begin flooding me with all this response. And then they said, 
we want you to have dinner with them. And what do you say when you're the college pastor? Sure, that's cool. I'm doing anything. So I had dinner with them. My wife and I did. And you know what I found out? They were some of the most godly, Christ-honoring, Christ-loving, caring people I had ever met. And I had to repent. Because I recognized how unbelievably prejudiced I had been about them. It seems that preferences and homogeneity are at the top of the list for growing and developing churches, but is that the case? One church growth leader has written this. (laughs) The style of music you choose in your services will be one of the most critical and controversial decisions you'll ever make in the life of your church. It also may be the most influential factor in determining who your church reaches for Christ and whether or not your church grows. That's a big statement. Did you hear that? You must match your music to the kind of people God wants your church to reach. The music you use positions your church in the community. Once you have decided on the style of music you're going to use in worship, you have set the direction of your church in far more ways than you realize. It will determine the kind of people you attract, the kind of people you keep, and the kind of people you lose. If you were to tell me the kind of music you are currently using in your services, this writer says, I can describe to you the kind of people you are reaching even without visiting your church, and I could also tell you the kind of people your church will never reach, end quote. Now, here's my question. How do you know that? On what authority would one say that? Because he's saying the issue of music is the issue of unites or divides. And yet, when you parachute into Romans chapter 15, you see two groups of people who had uncommon music, uncommon dress, uncommon eating styles, uncommon language, uncommon religion. They could not have been further apart in every dimension of life and God takes these groups of people throws them in the same church building and says glorify me with unity against the backdrop of your diversity now here's my my challenge you'll be tempted when you read this this is is to say yeah this is the Jew and Gentile thing again Paul's like really obsessed with this he talks to the Galatians about this and the Ephesians about this he talks again to the Romans over and over about this and that was then and this is now and those poor old ancient Christians had issues with anxiety and preferential treatment and and issues with prejudice and frankly we just don't deal with that really Really? Let's see if you say that by the end of this passage. How do we organize and maintain believers in our assembly, especially and because of our diversity and our differences? Well, here in Romans chapter 14 and the first part of 15, Paul's been discussing the problem in the church at Rome. These Italian Jews and Italian Gentiles were coming to Christ and they didn't have a lot of church options. 
There wasn't a first and second Baptist church. There, there was the church at Rome. We don't know of any other church at this point except this one. It's the only place they could come to worship Christ with other believers. And this led to a whole host of conflicts because of their prejudices, the Gentiles against the Jews and the Jews especially against the Gentiles. Now listen, put yourself in their sandals for a minute. You have these Jews, we've studied this all throughout Romans, these Jews who believe that they own the Messiah. And in essence, they do. He was to come from the, the first thing we learn in the New Testament is he was from the tribe of David. So imagine yourself being a saved Jew who now understands Christ and sees that Jesus is the one. He is our Jewish Messiah. And then these Gentiles believe that he's the Messiah, are radically converted, turn their backs on their past, give their lives to the Lordship of Christ, and they come to church together, and they're looking at these Jews saying, that's not what you thought. That Jesus is different than your preconceived notions of a Messiah who would be a zealot to kill all the Romans. And they had a massive collision. So Paul says, let's have a Jewish Sunday school and a Gentile Sunday school. And let's have a Jewish Bible study and a Gentile Bible study. Actually, let's have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. First hour, second hour. Does he divide them? The complete opposite. He says, your diversity is going to glorify God by you placing Christ above your personal preferences and sometimes your ignorance and past. It's a critical part of what it means to follow Christ. And we're going to find out because he accepted us. We have no reason not to accept each other. We could say it like this. Any friend of Jesus is not a friend and not a close friend is a best friend of mine. So let's dive into this passage. It's actually pretty simple and straightforward. and I think you'll be convicted as I was going through this. I read this at first a few weeks ago, looking at preaching it and thinking, ah, oh, we're just going to have to get this Jew and Gentile thing out of the way, and then we'll go on to the closing of the letter. Wow, was I mistaken. Four elements we're going to find, four elements of a Christian maturity that transform divisive diversity into loving acceptance. That's a big proposition, but it's the only way I could reduce it. These are the elements of Christian maturity that he began speaking about in the last uh, paragraph. Elements of Christian maturity that transform divisive diversity, that which is different about us. It transforms that into loving acceptance. The first element is in verse 7. It's as simple as the nose on your face, obedience to God. Number one, obedience to God. Therefore, based on what he has told us last week that we're to, the strong, are, the mature are to understand and carry the burden of the weak and the weak are to grow up and be more mature. Therefore, accept one another. Now that would be strong enough. That would be hard enough. That would be far-reaching enough if he hadn't added the next phrase. Just as Christ. Stop right there. This is a phrase that's a favorite of Paul's. Anytime he tells us to do something and says just as Christ, you need to, 
You need to straighten up and listen. He's now pointing to our Savior. Accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. The first thing to consider is that we are flat out commanded to accept one another. Said another way, we are flat out commanded to set aside our prejudices. These are the Jews and Gentiles. I don't think you could create a group based on race, religion, ethnicity, socioeconomic level. I don't think you could find a group with whom you are more at odds than the Jews and the Gentiles would have been in this context. And yet he says, accept one another. This is the conclusion to chapter 14 and 15, uh, 1 to 12, where he's saying, some people have hang-ups about certain Christian liberties and freedoms, and other people have certain liberties about those. You need to love and accept one another. Accept one another because Christ accepted us to the glory of God. Now, look for a moment, sneak a peek back over at chapter 14. Verse 3, because if you're smart, and I know you are, you would say, okay, what does it mean to accept someone? Does that mean tolerate them? Does that mean disagree and, and go to different corners of the church? Does that mean have somebody else over for dinner but exclude them? What does it really mean to accept one another? This, get ready to be shattered he uses the exact same word in verse 3 of chapter 14. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. Speaking about eating meat offered to idols and certain dietary restrictions or uh, obligations that the Jewish believers felt they needed to keep in Leviticus. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. Why? Here it is. For God has, same word, accepted him. What does it mean to accept another? Whatever it means is as deep and wide as God's salvific acceptance of his enemies. Listen, that's profound. That's intense. That's heavy. How can we reject or be prejudiced against one for whom Christ stretched his hands, suffered, bled, and died for? Are you prejudiced? Have you prejudged anyone? This is linked. In the end of the verse and moving into verse 8, number 2, the second element is imitation of Christ. How does Christian maturity transform divisive diversity into this loving acceptance? Well, Paul tells us, number 2, imitation of Christ. Now, underneath this, he's going to talk about how Christ accepted Jews and Gentiles. The Jews would not have had trouble swallowing the fact that he accepted them. That's what they expected, that he was their Messiah. But that God would accept Gentiles a little bit out of their comfort zone. So he breaks his argument down into two sections. First, Christ became a servant to the Jews, verse 8. 
Christ became a servant to the Jews. This is no surprise. It's pretty straightforward, very simple. Verse, seven, verse 8, rather. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. That's code for, as we saw back in Romans 2, that's code for the Jews. They were called the circumcision. He's become a servant to the Jews, to the circumcision, on behalf of the truth that God, of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Going all the way back to Abraham when he was promised a seed that would one day be the savior of the world. Going from there back, therefore rather, he's saying God fulfilled all of his promises. Every one of them. So that the baby born in a manger and the one crucified on Calvary who rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of God is exactly, identically, beyond all odds, prophetically attached to the Old Testament. It's the simple truth that Jesus is the only true and perfect confirmation of the promises of God given to the fathers. By the way, before the Jews, the Jewish Christians could set aside their prejudice to accept the Gentiles, they had to set aside their prejudices about the Messiah. Just look back over at chapter 10 for a moment. Paul talks about these Jews, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them, these Jews, is for their salvation. For I testify about them. They have a zeal for God, but, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. That's, they didn't understand. They had prejudices against a crucified Messiah. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God And I love verse 4. I love verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And I can't resist saying that verse comes after chapter 9, which which is where he so strongly lands on the sovereignty of God in salvation. So much so that he says God chose one twin over the other before they even born. That's how sovereign he is in his choice. And yet he concludes that section in verse 4 saying everyone who believes. He doesn't say everyone who's elect or predestined. Yes, I believe in predestined. So does Paul and predestination. Yes, election. But he says to believe. There is no imbalance in the scripture. And the key here is it was the Jews who had to believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified as a murderer, was their Messiah. So Christ became a servant to the Jews To show them that he was indeed the Messiah. That's pretty straightforward. Read the gospel account. It's almost all to supply that simple proof. And there's only one verse devoted to that. (laughs) And now he spends the next five devoted to the Gentiles. So Christ became a servant to the Jews. Secondly here, he became a servant to the Gentiles. He now quotes four Old Testament passages, four passages from the Jewish Bible to point to the amazing reality that the Jewish scriptures reveal that God has always intended for the Gentiles to be brought into the salvific fold. This wasn't a surprise. This wasn't plan B. This wasn't a footnote. It's something he emphasized early and often in Romans, but here it's it's something a little bit different. He's saying that Christ's servanthood secured salvation both for Jews and Gentiles 
in such a way that it provides an example for us of being unified across those religious and cultural divides. So he goes to four passages. We won't exegete all four of these passages in the Old Testament. We're just going to go through them as quickly as Paul did. Verse 9. And for the Gentiles, remember he talked about the circumcision, now he's talking to the Gentiles, to glorify God for his mercy. It's interesting here that he, he doesn't say grace. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. He gave the Gentiles who were destined to wrath, read Romans 1, mercy. That they would glorify God for his withholding of judgment through the cross. Then he starts giving his biblical proof. As it is written, and he quotes 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty, which was also repeated um, in uh, Psalm 18. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. This is David speaking. And I will sing to your name. The great king of Israel, David, had in his worship paradigm the ability to see that the Gentiles ought to know about his God. Israel would praise God among the Gentiles, in other words, so that the Gentiles would hear of God's grace, his glory, his mercy, his might, his power, his strength. And if that's not enough, just when those Jewish believers say, well, okay, but that's one verse, he goes, verse 10. Again, he says, now the question is, who is he? Um, Because this is a different, this is Moses, and he was talking about David. So who's the he here? Well, I think he here is the Spirit of God. It's God himself. Again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 43, the song of Moses, which ends by saying, Rejoice, O nations, Gentiles, with his people. Rejoice with his people. In other words, Jews and Gentiles worshiping together in the same church is a prophetic answer to Moses' song. Wow. The great first and foremost leader of Israel prophesied about Jews and Gentiles worshiping together in the blood-bought church of Christ. By the way, if you kept reading in Deuteronomy, the next phrase says, God will take vengeance on his enemies. Their only access was through the Jewish Messiah. One writer says, the Gentiles will meet God at the fellowship table or at the bar of justice. They are invited to come willingly in peace or be forced to come submissively in subjection, end quote. Verse 11, he gives a third. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. This is a direct command to the Gentiles. And let all the peoples praise him. This is Psalm 117, verse 1, the shortest uh, chapter in the Bible. It's two verses, all about missions. 
Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Do you understand that part of the Old Testament, part of the Jewish scriptures is addressed to Gentiles who would believe in Yahweh, who would be Jesus. And then he goes to Isaiah, verse 12. Again, Isaiah. I love it. Again, again, again. Another verse, another verse, another verse. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse. They all knew. The Jews knew exactly what that was. The Messiah. And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. And I think at this point, the Jews would be saying, that's right, he will rule over them. He will rule over them with a rod of iron. He will judge them. He will put them in subjection. And then he adds this from Isaiah. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. So Paul says, really? Have you not read your Bibles? The branch was Jesus in whom the Gentiles were hoping there in Italy. Now just think for a moment how these words would have landed in Rome. The Jews would have been stymied to see their own Bibles included salvation being extended to the Gentiles. It's important to see that Christian Gentiles were not an afterthought to God. But the Gentiles would have also been shocked to see that they were a part of God's Old Testament prophetic call to the nations to love and know him. I mean, the Gentiles would have said, really? I'm, I'm in your Torah? I'm in your Hebrew Bible? And the answer was, yes, you were. Yes, you are. And don't miss the point. Because God's plan always included a bride for his son that is a church full of Jews and Gentiles. The point and the principle is that disunity in the church between two groups, no matter what's causing that diversity, is completely unacceptable. first element of Christian maturity that transforms division, divisive diversity into loving acceptance is obeying God because he says accept each other. The second is the imitation of Christ who reached out to Jews and Gentiles. He was the savior of all men. And then look at those climaxes in verse 13. First of all, the third element is it has a faith that affects, not effects, it's an important word. It's one of Jonathan Edwards' favorite words, uh, the religious affections. These, these are uh, to have an effect on, to make a difference, to touch the feelings and the soul. Faith that touches. Where do we get that from? Verse 13. Now, he moves to doxology. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. How? Through faith. What's the next phrase say? In believing. In other words, what makes common our fellowship is that we both believe, no matter what the cultural or religious or ethnic or 
prejudice divide is we both all believe in the same Lord and Savior. This benediction hints as to the trauma that was disunifying the church in Rome. And the whole context, remember this division between the, those who participated and those who didn't, the whole, the whole context shows that there was a lack of joy and peace in this, this church because they were at odds with each other, at each other's neck, telling the other through judgment, you're wrong. And Paul says, stop, stop. You'll have joy, you'll have peace, you'll abound in hope, as we'll see in a moment. God will fill you with hope. The participle says how? What's the means? In believing. I told you last week about being a part of a world record, at least for a week, when I was at the Chiefs game on a Monday night, and uh, we made the loudest the stadium had ever been. We set aside what was different for something more important. That is such a picture of what's happening here in the church. We set aside prejudices for someone more important, our Lord and Savior. The controlling factor in having joy and peace is believing in believing, he says, in having faith. Our faith should have affections on us. It should affect us. Can I be honest with you? It's kind of a, you know, left brain, straightforward guy. And I mean, I, I, I consider myself okayly, is that a word? Okayly emotional, but not overly emotional. And I consider myself not like a hyper charismatic in displays of emotion. I'm convicted by this. Because when it says fill you, it means you're overflowing with all joy and peace. It means exuberance that when people bump into you, what spills out is joy and peace. You're at peace and you're happy. I looked at three different Greek, diction, Greek dictionaries to find out what this word joy is, thinking, well, it's different than being happy. You know what they all said? Happy. No such thing as an Eeyore Christian. No such thing as, well, I guess we'll go to church today if we have to. No, it's joy. You're happy. You want to know something that'll make you happy? If you're a believer, you're not going to hell. Is that a game stopper? You have peace in this life. You have direction, camaraderie, fellowship, hope and trials. Peace and hope and death. So it makes sense that he would add this fourth element of Christian maturity that will transform diversity into loving acceptance. Hope that abounds. This is exactly what we looked at last week. Hope that abounds so that you will be able, abound rather, overflow, explode, enjoy, be sufficiently supplied with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe the most important part of this verse 
is that the word you is plural in the original. That y'all, Paul was a good southerner, that y'all, all of you, will abound implication together in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are driving toward the same hope and the same home. We're going the same place. We should go there together. We should get a ride with each other. In my office, right back over your left shoulder, I, I have a power strip. I don't know how safe this is. I know you electricians are going to come and talk to me in a minute. And talk to Bob. He's in charge. Plugged into this power strip is my computer and a computer monitor. And a lamp and a phone charger. And in the winter, a heater. All of these things are completely distinct and serve different purposes. But they're all supplied by the same power source. That's the picture here. The power source is the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who unites, energizes, encourages, illumines, and equips us. Hope then is that common looking forward together of a common experience. Can I be silly again with you about football? I grew up going uh, to University of Tennessee, volunteers, just love saying that, uh, football games my whole life. My dad was one of my best memories is to a kid going up to the football, uh, watching the, the Vols over and over. And I noticed something. We would hang orange and white, a really special orange and white, um, you know, pom-poms and things out of the window. People would put magnets on their 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 um, cars, and you'd be going up the freeway, and everyone knew when they saw that in other people's cars where we were all going. And, and, and there was just this camaraderie that was built. We're, we're all going together. We, we're going to the same place. It was fun. It was exciting. There was, there was momentum. Do you experience momentum with other believers, especially in light of our diversity, that one day all that diversity will be let go and shed in heaven. It's that common experience of hope that knits our hearts together. Can I say it as, as pointedly as possible? You better learn to get along with people who claim Christ and are believers this side of heaven that you don't like because you're going to spend eternity with them. In Luke 18, remember the parable that Jesus told of the two men who went up to the temple to pray. There's a Pharisee and a tax collector, a Gentile. And he looks to the one who humbled himself as the one who was right with God.
We don't have the time right now, but would you just read James chapter 2? Can I tell you a little bit what what it's about? Now, we're talking about the Jew and Gentile problem. James, who was a pastor in Jerusalem, said, you know what? It's not just Jew and Gentile. There are some people who come in, and you can tell by the way they dress. They're, they're sharply dressed. They have expensive clothes on, and you, you know that they are people of means. And they come into church, and the temptation is, oh, come Here's a great seat right here. Come down. Sit in the best place. Have the best meat at the potluck. You know what James says? You're prejudiced. You're partial. You shouldn't treat that person any less special. But why do we treat anyone special? So sometimes our prejudice is born out of what we dislike. And sometimes our prejudice is born out of what we might get out of someone. It's all dissolved. So what do we learn from the problem and solution here in Romans 15? What does this have to do with you sitting at Mission Road today? Let me tell you. The gospel enables and compels us to act against our instincts to accept others. That's simple. The gospel compels and it enables us, the power of the Holy Spirit, to act against our instinct, our prejudicial instincts, and accept one another. You say, what categories? How about those who are different than you ethnically? Different color, skin, different background. Are you equally as willing to reach out, love, have in your home? Think of the Jews and Gentiles. How about those who dress differently? Remember my stupidity seeing this group of this family who is dressed in a certain way thinking they must be certain things that they weren't? How about who eat differently? You can actually have a gluten-free friend over. No, I won't go there. You can, but you better watch what you put in your, in, your, in your dinner. How about those whose background is different from our own? Those who are different generationally. <laughs> How do you look at the young people? I was going to say older people, but more mature people. They don't have a clue. They're dumbing down this. They don't. Really? When, when have you reached out to them? And you young people who think the old people are somehow stuck in, you know, back in the 1900s. I'll never forget when my son told me, Dad, that's from back in the 1900s. Back in the 1900s? That's my century. What are you talking about? <laughs> Those who are different socially, financial differences, maturity difference. How about coolness? You know what I think in our generation and in our culture, what would show the world that we are, are servants of Christ and believers in the gospel is when the cool and the weird or the uncool love each other, care for each other. Who do you pursue and who do you avoid when you come on the property Who's the last person you invited to lunch different than you? Purposefully to learn to love them better. Or are we going to be a group with these little homogeneous groups and we just kind of stick with this old people, young people, cool people, not cool people, rich people, poor people?
My heart was broken at first the summer. And I felt my prejudices challenged when I was speaking with a friend, who's an acquaintance actually, who's a pastor and was at a conference. And he was distressed because his church was a very small rural church. And there was a guy who'd shown up a few weeks in a row, tattoos from his neck all the way down, piercings everywhere there could be a piercing, ripped and tattered jeans. And I heard him say this. It makes me nervous because I wonder what a guy like that could do to a church like ours. Is that the right question? What kind of church do you want to have here on Mission Road? What kind of church member do you want to be? Jesus accepted you, and we were unacceptable. Do you know your prejudice? Are you aware of your prejudices? Let's work on crucifying them together in a common hope, believing with a common faith in that great day. And if we're all going to go to the same place, let's go there together in unity and diversity and show the world that what unites us is not what unites them.